I think the industry is going to be challenged over the next five or 10 years, unless we can figure out how to balance between cheaper products, which attracts more new people to the sport and crowding and capacity issues. We really only have two products today. It's either we give you a discount if you buy a pass or we charge you a lot if you don't. But the, hey, the, the people who come the most, we're going to charge them the least. And the, the people who are trying to get to join for the first time, we're going to charge them the most. That's, to me, is it's not a sustainable <laughs> model. We're going to have to find a way to reconcile that. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Big one for you today as we talk Altera and the Icon Pass with the guy running the whole show. Quick favor first, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Stormskiing newsletter. If you're just now finding the podcast, welcome. I am so fired up to have you here. But know this, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. In fact, the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every stormskiing podcast that includes a ton of additional context on our conversation. I am also delivering breaking news and analysis of the world of lift serve skiing all year round. That's a minimum of 100 articles every single year delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Altera, a quick word from my partner, Profile Search International. We are coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, and the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, Profile Search International finds and negotiates with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Episode 138. Jared Smith, President and CEO of Elterra Mountain Company. Normally, I open the podcast with a brief note on my guest and the circumstances that bring them to the conversation. But today, I'm going to open with a clip from my interview with Elterra's previous CEO, Rusty Gregory, who came on this podcast last June and broke down exactly why Jared Smith was the next best person to lead this young company. 
was a year-long recruiting process and uh, met some of the most accomplished CEOs and qualified to be CEO type candidates that I ever, ever have. Jared, for me, was head and shoulders above the others because first, his passion for skiing, his description of the value of skiing for his family and himself and uh, how passionate he was about it was the first thing that attracted me to him. And and then the others were the fact that he had run a very sophisticated company during a time of tremendous change. What Ticketmaster went through over his 17-year career, I think, you know, they basically went from paper ticket scalpers to some of the most sophisticated technology of anybody in the country. And Jared was driving that change. And that's exactly the kind of change that the ski industry needs to go through next. So he's the, uh, the right leader at the right time with the right talent for the opportunity that Altera has in the five years and beyond going forward. When Altera materialized in 2017, the company needed an experienced and respected ski industry manager to unite its vastly different resorts. No one was better equipped to do that than Rusty Gregory, who'd spent 40 years running Mammoth, one of the biggest and most complex ski resorts in the country. Five years later, with the greatest collection of ski resorts ever assembled, headlining the Icon Pass and the Altera Mountain Company Stable, it was time for a new set of skills, a new set of ideas, and a new leader for a new digital era. Let's see what he has to say. My guest today is the president and CEO of Altera Mountain Company. In June, Altera acquired their 16th mountain resort, Schweitzer Mountain in Idaho. With Altera's Icon Pass, skiers can access more than 50 destinations in North America, Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Prior to joining Altera in 2021, he spent nearly 18 years between Ticketmaster and Live Nation, leading those companies through unprecedented growth and change. Jared Smith is my guest. Jared, so great to connect. Welcome to the storm. How is everything out in Colorado today? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Stuart. Pleasure to be here. I know we've been trying to get this on the books for some time, so I'm glad we were actually able to get it together. Things in Colorado are warm. We got a nice, solid batch of the 90s here. <laughs> so far from ski season, uh, as far as how it feels out there, but it'll come up soon enough. You know, Jared, I really hate to start on a down note here, but let's begin with the passing of Aspen managing partner Jim Crown on June 25th. What can you tell us about Jim and what kind of person he was? I, yeah, listen, uh, Jim was exceptional in in almost every way. It was a very, very sad day for obviously the Altera family, the Aspen family, and, and most particularly the Crown family. Jim was a big part of uh, certainly of, of Aspen and the ski industry as a whole, which is why the Crowns came to be such an integral piece of the foundation of what Altera has become. And he's continued to play that role up to and including was instrumental in my hiring and process to bring me on board. We happened to have a board meeting the week before the accident. We were in Chicago and I was able to spend a bunch of time with Jim over dinner the night prior and then in some activities that we had that week. And is always just a down-to-earth, thoughtful, smart, personable gentleman. And it's just a pleasure to be around. At dinner, we sat down and he had just come from the new mayor's office in Chicago. And 
I was chatting with him about some of the, you, you read the headlines about some of the crime rate in Chicago, which, you know, the Midwestern or Chicago is the, the big town that we aspired to be a part of when we were growing up, big Chicago sports fan, et cetera, et cetera. And Jim's sense of responsibility to his community in Chicago as a whole led to things like the headlines not too long ago about him agreeing with the mayor to sit on and, and chair a new committee to, to help drive the multi-generational change that's going to need to happen in Chicago around some of the, the crime issues and security issues that are troubling in parts of the city. And it was just a reminder of, at this point in Jim's career, he could have been doing anything that he wanted to do, but it was a mixture of business and a real sense of responsibility for those around. He's going to be very, very missed by a lot of people, us included. You know, it sounded like you, in the couple of years you were at Altera, were able to establish a close relationship with Mr. Crown. How influential was he in hiring you? And in turn, how much did his personality and his leadership style influence your decision to join Altera, knowing that that's the sort of leader that was at the head of Aspen and, and that that leadership tends to trickle down. Yeah, for sure. You know, my process to join the company was pretty exhaustive. The conversations that we had spanned almost a year. And Jim certainly was a big part of that process, as was Bill Crown, the other managing director at Henry Crown and Company, and then Eric Resnick and, and his colleagues at KSL, along with Rusty, all of whom were part of a, of a really exhaustive process for <laughs> this special thing that they had created and 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 put so much time, energy, and, and capital into, and they wanted to make sure that they got the hire right. I guess, ultimately, time will tell. But for me, to have the opportunity to work alongside those individuals, all of them, certainly Jim included, but not exclusively, was a big part of my motivation to want to join the company as badly as I did. I was certainly proud of the career that I had in live entertainment, and it was the bulk of my career. So I didn't look at leaving and, and changing industries lightly. But when you look at new opportunities, for me, I wanted to go someplace that was also uh, had some scale. You know, obviously Ticketmaster, Live Nation, big companies, big players in their industry have scale, have an ability to really make some change and drive some change for, for positive reasons. So I wanted to, to do that. I'm not really a startup guy by trade. So that was important to me. Altera certainly checked that box. Certainly my background is you know consumer focused, technology focused. It's obviously a consumer business, definitely technology we can talk about. A big part of our plans going forward. And then ownership and the ability to get the resources and, and work with great people that you think are going to empower you to continue to grow. And for me, you know, at the time, certainly the reputations of those gentlemen precede all of them, Jim included. And my experience has been nothing short of exactly what their reputations were. It's an exceptional ownership group that does what they profess and has continued to invest and wants to build something really special here. And myself and the, the rest of the team are the beneficiaries of that. So really long answer to, to your question, but you know, Jim was a huge part of that. His experience at Aspen, his stewardship of that brand, that experience, that asset, along with Mike Kaplan and, and the team there, translated you know, obviously very well to what we've been trying to build here. And it was a big part of the philosophy of how we operate. So I want to set this up for the listeners. Altera is a joint venture between Aspen or Henry Crown and KSL Capital. Talk about Jim's role as that managing partner of Aspen in founding Altera and the Icon Pass six years ago now. 
Yeah, obviously before my time, so I, I wasn't here to be part of the conversations, but I think through IntraWest, which is kind of the core of what made up Altera and what Altera was made from, was available for a transaction. You know, certainly KSL, which owned at the time Squaw Valley, Altai Meadows, now Palisades Tahoe, and then you know Henry Crown Company, which owned Aspen and had been involved in the ski business for some time. There were some introductions between the two of them and the idea formed and, and blossomed, I think, based on the commonality, as I, as I said, of philosophy, which is that the ski industry kind of sits at the center of the experiential economy. It's something super unique and that the common experiences that they had could be brought to bear in a way that was really special and, and started to maintain the things that made the ski industry great, particularly at those properties and expanded that to the rest along with some innovation. So those early conversations, I think really spearheaded by Jim, who was of all of the folks at Henry Crown, probably the closest to the ski business. And certainly Bill Crown has become a huge part of our ownership group over the last six years. And so it was, it was really Jim and Eric that, that started those conversations and kind of created some of the ideas. So it's the company comes from good breeding, I would say. It's interesting when you step back and look at what Altera has become and, and what it could have been in these different alternate realities. You look at the Vail Resorts model and they chose to take their flagship resorts, Vail Beaver Creek, and put them right at the top of the company. And Aspen could have done that. They could have rolled Aspen Skiing Company into Altera and made those flagship resorts along with Steamboat and Palisades and some others. But they didn't. And, and I hosted Mike Kaplan on this podcast a couple of years ago, and he broke down. He, he told us the story very well of why Aspen did not become part of Altera. Just curious, knowing Jim the way that you did, Jared, do you have any insight on why it would have been important to him to keep Aspen as a separate entity, even as it became an important part of the Icon Pass? I've listened to that episode, and Mike did a really good job of breaking down the thinking at the time, and I think it holds true today, which is Aspen a, is a super unique brand, a super unique experience. And from a governance standpoint, we could achieve a lot of what we want to achieve in partnership with Icon Pass and, and the like without merging it in in a way that would be dilutive to either Aspen or to Altera and what we're trying to do. So I think leaving it separate the way they did Aspen is its own brand. It's its own experience and, and it sits in a category into and unto itself. So I think it, for all of those reasons and Jim's stewardship and the families, the closeness of the family and, and Jim in particular as affinity to that property, we could figure out how to get the benefits of being in partnership without operating them both together. I think I would just underscore how Jim in particular felt about Aspen was super unique. It was all of the things that they were involved in, they were involved in, in many just unbelievable projects and companies and, and assets. Aspen was near and dear to him in a way that I think was unique amongst all of those. So I'm sure that had a lot to do with how he viewed it. So you stepped into a great situation. Altera is a young company, but at this point it's a well-established ski company and it's telling a great story. I want to back up here, Jared, and close that loop. Where did you grow up? You said you were a Midwestern guy. Yeah. Did you grow up skiing? Just break it down for us. Yes, I'm an Iowan. I grew up on the steep, steep hills and slopes of Iowa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Corn stocks and fig farms. Um, 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm some of the youngest of five boys. Grew up in Iowa, born and raised in a great kind of athletic family. Played all of the sports, but skiing really wasn't one of them. Obviously in the Midwest, not a lot of skiing there and not a huge ski culture. We did a couple of ski trips growing up and did a little bit in college, but came to love it actually later in life. Kind of grew into it as I started to travel to California and then ultimately moved to California while I was working with Ticketmaster and Live Nation and started to really go to Mammoth with my family, where it became a second love of an activity kind of after golf and tennis. And we've raised our girls on skis and, and in Mammoth and, and all around. So a little bit late to the party, for sure, from that perspective. But yeah, it's something that is a big part of our, our family today. So you get this love of skiing and meanwhile, you're building a career. So, you know, I, I think this is, you have a really interesting story at Ticketmaster in that you started in an entry-level sales job, is my understanding, in 2003 and worked your way up to run the company. So take us through that journey and your personal evolution and also the evolution of Ticketmaster and then Live Nation. How did those companies in, in evolve over time and how did your career grow alongside of it? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and make that journey uh, as concise as I can, although it didn't feel very concise at the time. You know, like I said, I was, I was there almost 18 years. It was it was the bulk of my career. I kind of fell into the live entertainment business the same way that a lot of people fall into the ski industry, which is by accident. And you know somebody and you get a job as a lifty or you know somebody and you get a job on a tour bus uh, or at a local venue and your eyes open up and you go, oh my gosh, I could actually make a career out of this. And one of my older brothers had a former college baseball teammate that was in the arena management business, gave me an opportunity to do a marketing job at a, a smallish arena in Columbus, Georgia, south of Atlanta. And I did that for a couple of years and, and we went through a process to hire a new ticketing company and we hired Ticketmaster and I got to know the folks there and ultimately interviewed for a job at TM, a sales territory job that I didn't get and was, <laughs> was pretty disappointed. But got a call back and they said, well, we, we promoted somebody from a different region. So if you'd like to take their job, we'd like to offer you that. And, and the rest is history. So I started in a sales role in Birmingham, Alabama, which was, I think, the smallest, continues to be the smallest sales territory in the company. And I was young and married, but no kids. And we were mobile. My wife is a teacher by trade. So she was able to hop around. And, you know, every 12 to 24 months, they'd call and say, hey, would you like to go to, you know, Virginia Beach. Would you like to go to Charlotte? And we just increasingly did some of those moves and, and ran bigger and bigger territories. And I was, you know, I was in the right place at the right time, had some great mentorship with some folks in the company who saw something in me and gave me a bunch of unique opportunities. So I did that. We moved five times in eight years or something like that. And that was all Ticketmaster pre-merger with Live Nation, which happened in 2010. And I kind of found myself at that point, about to turn 38 years, seven, eight years in the, in the industry and trying to figure out if I wanted to do something else. And there again, had an opportunity with the incoming new management team from the Live Nation side who asked me to, to kind of run national sales and marketing. And that turned into the chief operating officer role, 
which I did from 2010 to 2013, that I don't know that I ever would have had an opportunity to do if not for the merger happening at that moment. The circumstances surrounding that and the change of the executive team at that time created a bit of a vacuum that you know a younger guy, a little bit greener guy like me had an opportunity to take one of those bigger roles. So I was lucky and I was certainly able to make the most of it. Yeah, I knew the business, I had been in the business, but I was young enough that I, you know, I was willing to make some change and I really felt and had conviction about some of the things that we weren't doing as well that needed to change and be more reflective of our customer base and our consumer base and needed to be a little bit more innovative on the tech side, et cetera. And we had some success. So I did that from 10 to 13. And then our CEO left in 2013 to go run media at Twitter, now X. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Funny enough. Um, and, I, uh, and I was fortunate to get an opportunity to take over the reins in 2013, which I did from 13 until the end of 2020. It was an awesome run. We had a great team of really, really dedicated people who just kind of woke up every day feeling part of something that was really cool. I mean, what did Ticketmaster look like when you got there? And what did it look like when you left? Because as we all know, everything is changing so fast that industries either adapt or they die. So take us through that evolution. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a dramatically different place over the 18 years that I was there. What most people don't realize about the Ticketmaster story is it, it was kind of one of the first technology disruption business stories, right? It was founded in 1976 by a couple of computer science majors at Arizona State University who thought we're working at the box office in a very non-digital way and said, we can do this better, created a digital ticketing system or electronic ticketing system, computer-based ticketing system, and disrupted the entire industry. And within 10, 15 years, we're the dominant player. And if you look at the, you know, to your point about innovator die, you know, I, I would challenge you, maybe the listeners, if you, if you kind of think about companies that were the dominant player in a pre-internet economy and continued to be the dominant player in a internet economy, and then ultimately were able to make that leap from internet even now into mobile and are still the leader in their industry, you won't come up with many. Ticketmaster is one of the very, very few. And there's a whole variety of reasons that that is the case. But when I started there, we really kind of looked like and acted like an enterprise software company, which was my job. That was what we did was we created the inventory management tools and the pricing tools and the access control systems. And we sold those to businesses. You know, our businesses just happened to be NBA teams or arenas or performing arts centers. And that was the business. It was very B2B software, almost the same that you would see IBM or Oracle or Salesforce from a culture standpoint. And the great irony of my time there and the great irony of Ticketmaster is the misperception and the disconnect between what people perceive Ticketmaster to be and what it actually is, is that it's really a B2B2C company, meaning they provided the software to those clients, sports teams, arenas, promoters, or otherwise. But that's what it was. It was the sports team or the arena and still is to this day that was setting the pricing, participating the most in the fees and, and making all of those decisions just happens to be the tool. It just was the Ticketmaster brand that was on the website, right? So not ironically, that was the biggest change between when I started and, and where we landed was that we became much more conscious of the direct-to-consumer side of the business. And over my time, the biggest change that we made was we quite literally split the company in two. 
which is to say we, we had one division that was focused on B2B software sales, providing those tools to the industry, separate and distinct from our consumer business, which ceased to become just the, here's the e-commerce module that sits on your inventory management system and started to become, no, no, we have to, we have to look at this truly as a, as a website. Like, do we have enough inventory and do we have fair pricing tools and do we have ways to protect consumers, not just as a B2B2C company, but as actually a, a B2C company. So we started to invest and invest heavily in the e-commerce experience. And that's where you really started to see things like our verified fan programs and dynamic pricing and more specific tools that were really focused on how do we make sure that these tickets are getting into the hands of actual fans instead of people who are, are purchasing for the express purpose of, of reselling. And we did some really great work and I'm really proud of the work that was there. Unfortunately, the demand supply dynamics of, of live entertainment are so out of whack that it is a really, really difficult problem to solve that most people don't have a, a full appreciation for. But I would say that was the biggest change, right? It was the focus of how we looked at the company and not ironically, the reason and the catalyst for that change was really was the merger with Live Nation, who wasn't a B2B company, right? They were the content company. They were the big company that was putting on the concert itself. And they wanted to make sure that they had a consumer experience that served their customers and their fans well. So Michael Rapino, who's the longtime CEO of that business, a brilliant guy, really was a big part of the catalyst and really shifted the investment profile in Ticketmaster to allow us to build a lot of the tools that we ultimately ended up building. So enormous change, and you played an important role in that change. But after 18 years, you decided to move on. So take us into this. It's the latter half of 2020, and you leave Ticketmaster Live Nation, and then you ultimately join Altera. And I want to reset a quote from Variety. And you said that when you leave, quote, the most important thing to me is finding an opportunity with great growth potential that leverages my experience of building innovative products, high-performing teams, and operating at real scale, end quote. So talk about that transition and why Altera ended up being the right home for you. Yeah. <laughs> 2020 was an interesting year for a lot of people, myself included. And it turns out the pandemic was not a great time to be in the business of shutting thousands of shouting people in, in small confined spaces all at the same time. Um, right. It was, it was <laughs> devastating for, for live entertainment for the better part of right. you know, a, a year or two. And I think ultimately the great irony of COVID was it reminded all of us just how important the human instinct is to be together and to enjoy unique experiences together. And since COVID, Ticketmaster Live Nation and the entire live entertainment industry has flourished as a result of that. And I think a lot of that you see in ski and, and other experiential businesses too, where we've really seen a, a return to want to be active in that way. But had it not been for COVID, I'm not sure that I would have entertained leaving at the time. We felt like we still had a few innings of that game to play. And we had built an amazing management team there that I was really proud of and enjoying working for. But COVID really disrupted that business. And to say that it was meaningful is an understatement. So it really got me thinking about I was 20 years in an industry and coming out of that was going to be either rebuild a lot of the things that we had, we had just done, or, you know, the business was going to look a lot different on, on the other side of that, a lot of uncertainty. So I had a conversation with Michael Rapino about, Hey, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll make sure that you get through this, but this might be a, a natural jumping off point for me to, to look at doing something else for the rest of my career. And he was 
a great mentor and it was a tough but really fulfilling conversation and I kind of agreed to stay on through the pandemic and get them transitioned, which I did while I tried to figure out what was next. And that quote that you read really kind of nailed it. I wanted to make sure whatever I did next took advantage of my skill set and the things that I had learned. But I was I was also ready to do something else. And certainly if it had scale and, and had growth potential and it was something that I, I could affect and that could benefit from my skill set. It didn't necessarily have to be in live entertainment. So I was, I was certainly willing to look at other things. The fact that it ended up checking all of those boxes and happening to be a product that I was passionate about was a little bit of lucky stardust, I, I suppose. But ironically, I got a call about the job as Rusty and the rest of the, the ownership group were doing the search in between the time that I had decided that I was going to make a change but before it was public that I was going to make the change. And in the category of the good Lord finds a way to take care, I chalk it up to that, right? So that's how the process started. I got a call from a recruiter. They were doing an extensive national global search for their next leader after a, a legendary guy and Rusty who had taken them from zero to 60 pretty effectively and gotten them through the pandemic and all of those things. So that was really it. And then I, I looked at a bunch of other things, but I'd be lying if I said that even though I was looking at some other very interesting things that I wanted to do anything other than this once this opportunity presented itself. So, so as I said, that you know, it was a, about a year long process. And the more I learned about the business, the more I learned about the ownership group, the more I learned about the opportunity, the more I was sold that this was not just something that I wanted to do, but that was really kind of unique amongst opportunities that you could pursue anywhere. So let's make a, a rough comparison here to Ticketmaster when you started and Altera when you started. And there was this great interview you did in Polestar in 2020. And you said that you brought in, quote, eight or nine executives from blue chip companies, none of which came from the entertainment industry, end quote. We're really seeing where the successful companies become tech companies. But as well as you can here, Jared, compare the state of ticketing when you started. Maybe that's not a fair starting point because Altera, I think, is a little ahead of that. But compare the state of ticketing when you started at Ticketmaster to the state of skiing or the ski industry when you started at Altera. Where are our talent, knowledge, capability gaps? How have you gone about filling them? And take us into the future. What do you think still needs to be done? It's a great question and a fair one. At TM, you know, at that time, when I roughly took over to, you know, 2013, give or take, Ticketmaster had been around for better part of almost 40 years. So a very established company had long since been the dominant player in the industry, was probably traded in a couple of different forms. So when you think about uh, Altera versus Vail, and it's not always easy to be the single public traded company <laughs> in your industry right, right. where everybody else is looking at your numbers and, and what you're doing in, through a different lens. So it was very established and I was of the industry. I, at that point, had been in the business for 10 years and had a bunch of great relationships and, and great knowledge about the business, but the technology had changed. I mean, I looked around and I said, we're behind, pretty dramatically behind on digital transformation and proper performance marketing capability set. And, and our MarTech stack was basically non-existent from e-commerce perspective and a marketplace perspective. We didn't even talk about it that way. We talked about e-commerce as a feature of essentially the platform that we were selling, not as a true marketplace of buyers and sellers. So what we, it wasn't just me, but what we as leaders of, the, of that business at the time decided was, you know, we got, we got more ticketing knowledge than we can shake a stick at. Like we've got 
we've got the best ticketing minds in the world and we've got a lot of them. What we don't have is, you know, people who have experience in some of these different, you know, avenues, performance marketing or e-commerce or technology and uh, software development, et cetera. And that really was, was the catalyst for us to, to go look outside our four walls and say, how do we blend these things, right? How do we bring in some subject matter expertise in on these segments of business more generically and combine them into our industry in a way that, you know, one plus one equals, equals more than two. And that's what we did. And we brought in some great people from a lot of very recognizable companies and and the combination made us stronger. And between 13 and 20, we had a really, really incredible run, you know, not just financially, but from a product development perspective, we really started to innovate and take some things to market that nobody had ever seen before and were pretty well received. So that was kind of the state there, you know, coming in here, my perspective is in some ways similar, in some ways very different. I think the biggest difference for me, obviously, is that I, I don't have you know a decade and a half of industry-specific knowledge of my own to have relied on as I was learning the industry and, and trying to assess what exactly that we needed. Now, in some respects, you don't need 10 years of experience to figure some of this stuff out, but in other respects, you really do. And I think not just do you, do you need the experience, but you need the credibility of having taken the time to really learn. And I think one of the biggest benefits that this ownership group gave me was the way that they did this onboarding transition period with Rusty. So I get to come into the company and spend a year plus with guys like Rusty Gregory and Mike Kaplan and the rest of the management team here, you know, the Mark Brownleys of the world who have been in this industry for decades and have been not just in the industry, right, but have kind of been luminaries of what has made it great. So that accelerated my learning curve pretty dramatically. And so the combination of, okay, so now I, I understand the kind of the ins and outs, if not the detail in my previous experience really has helped me get conviction, if you will, on some of the things that we need. And I think not surprisingly to me, one of the biggest hurdles in this industry continues to be the lack of a cohesive technology base upon which we can make the entire business easier. The most obvious of which is the consumer experience that we talk about as an industry. Like skiing is hard. <laughs> like, it's, we don't make it easy at all for people to come enjoy our sport, right? If you can get over the logistical nightmare, and if you get, can get over the cost you know, of a lift ticket and buying equipment or renting equipment and staying in a hotel and the travel to and from, you know, if you can get over all of that kind of stuff uh, and the intimidation factor, if you're new to the sport, then we make it just, we just make it hard to actually book your lift ticket and reserve your hotel and get your rentals and all that kind of stuff. So to me, that's the most obvious. And I think one of the endemic challenges of the industry is that it's only so big. Right. So unlike live entertainment, it's a big enough industry to have attracted both within the industry and third party development dollars into technology because the market addressable market size is big enough that there's real money to be made in the ski industry. It's it's small enough that you see some third party technology companies, Flake comes to mind or Aspen War comes to mind, but not really big players because the industry is not big enough to support a lot of that innovation by third parties. That's fine. It just means that we as operators then have to kind of step into that void and be willing to invest our own dollars because consumer expectations of what is ease in their purchase don't change between ordering a meal to be delivered or getting a ride in an Uber and showing up at a mountain. Like 
my, my expectation as a consumer is that if I can do all of those things in every other aspect of my purchase in e-commerce life, I should be able to do that with my ski vacation as well. So I think that's obviously the most obvious thing that has jumped out to me in the board. And we certainly talked about that as I was onboarding and giving my background. And we've made some significant investments already, not the least of which is the partnership that we made with Aspen Ski Co. and the acquisition of Aspenware. We've continued to bring in technology talent. And over the next you know year or two, I think you're going to see some pretty substantial improvements from us on all of that front. So that's, that's number one. Number two, to me, continues to be what I would say is generically kind of the application of data and analytics to the business writ large. And then most specifically, how that translates into product creation and pricing. And credit where credit is due, I think Vail has been a leader in the space in really using data and analytics to form you know, a strategy that was epic pass and, and a lot of the things that they've focused on around customer lifetime value and, and those types of things. I think the industry is, is going to be challenged over the next five or 10 years, unless we can f- continue to figure out how to balance between cheaper products, which attracts more new people to the sport and retains those people and crowding and capacity issues. And sometimes we talk about those things like they're mutually exclusive. I don't think they are, but I think when you really take a step back, and think about the way that we go to market today with pricing. We might employ dynamic pricing or variable pricing, but we really only have two products today. You know, we've got a version of a season pass. It might be a local pass, it might be a, a mountain pass, it might be a multi-mountain pass. But it, it's either we give you a discount if you buy a pass, or we charge you a lot if you don't on a day-by-day basis. <laughs> and that's kind of it, right? And if you if you juxtapose that to the live entertainment business as one example, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of if you buy season tickets, you know, we're going to give you a big discount. Or if you show up on the day of a ball game, we're going to charge you a nose for not buying the season ticket. And that's decidedly not what they do. Instead, you know, on any given day, looking here at Coors Field out my office window here in Denver, right? On any given day, you can go down to Coors Field and you can buy a $15 ticket to sit in the bleachers and, and just be part of the game, or you can spend thousands of dollars to have a premium experience with access to a club that includes all of your food and beverage and is just night and day different, and then everything in between. And I think that is a big learning that you can apply from that and some airline industries and, and some of these other industries that we're going to have to figure out how to balance that. How do we create more optionality, more flexibility, and provide a more premium experience with more offerings, more things in the package for people who want to pay that? And if we do that right, that should be able to increase that capture and allow us to lower the price for people to, to enter the sport for the first time. But the, hey, the, the people who come the most, we're going to charge them the least. And the, the people who are trying to get to join for the first time, we're going to charge them the most. That's to me is it's not a sustainable <laughs> model, right? We're we're gonna have to find a way to reconcile that. We definitely want to continue to make it cheaper overall and to give people incentive to buy passes, and that's worked incredibly well for the industry. I think it's been nothing short of industry changing, and thanks to products like Epic and Icon for doing that. But we have to find a way to balance that against the cost of entry into the sport overall. That's such an interesting notion, Jared. The course field example is great, right? You can get into course field for 15 bucks 
or you can pay a thousand dollars and be in a suite. We don't have those sorts of options with skiing right now, right? So a peak 2023 to 24 lift ticket, peak day lift ticket at Deer Valley is set to be $289. Steamboat is going to be $279. And you know, with a Deer Valley lift ticket, it doesn't matter if you stay at Snow Park all day or if you have a great day and go over to Empire and ski the whole thing. So how do we do that? I mean, how do you offer a tiered experience? Do you just give access do you give big discounts for just certain lifts? Is there, I don't know, is there like a, a secondary market where these things can maybe maybe go down? I, I, what, what, what sorts of, broadly speaking, ideas do you have? Because if, if something isn't done, I mean, this Deer Valley lift ticket's going to hit 500 bucks by 2030. Yeah, I mean, listen, I can't give you all my secrets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll give you a couple of examples. And you have to separate the issues, right? A lot is made of the window ticket price, the 289. But the reality is, as you all know, as somebody that covers the industry, it's pretty rare that somebody actually pays that price. That's the headline price on Christmas Day. If you haven't, if you haven't done anything in advance, and everybody kind of discounts or bases their dynamic pricing off of that. So that's one clarification. The separate clarification is the reality is the vast majority of our resorts, not just Alteros, but the industry, the vast majority of our resorts, we've got way more capacity than we have people to, to fill them. We just don't have that capacity on every day. So the gap between peak days and non-peak days, holidays and non-holidays is, is night and day. So we really need to be careful how we create these products in ways that don't dissuade people from coming. And I think that's part of the trick here. So post-COVID, you saw a pretty substantial, most substantial we've had in, in decades in the industry, you know, shift to midweek skiing. There isn't a resort outside of spring break weeks and, and Christmas week. There isn't a resort in North America that doesn't have capacity on most midweek days. So how do we take that momentum and lean into that with products that are really geared towards that? How do we do that on shoulder seasons? How do we do that on half day passes uh, that are cheaper? Like there are ways certainly to do that. But I think the real trick is going to be less about finding ways to reduce the experience, meaning these lifts only as much as it's going to be to enhance the experience at the higher end. Uh, if you'll allow me one more live entertainment analogy, it wasn't that long ago where you would you'd go to a concert at Madison Square Garden, right? That's got eighteen thousand seats, and the scaling of that concert would be, you know, fifty nine ninety nine, sixty nine ninety nine, and seventy nine ninety nine. Despite the fact that the value proposition of a front row seat versus the last seat in the house was pretty dramatically different, and the acceleration of that to 18,000 prices on any given day because they're dynamic and invariably priced. It happened quickly and then happened pretty robustly throughout the industry. And I think there's something to be said of what the biggest change there was not that the entry level price, the 59 went down, it was that the 79 went up. And that might feel counterintuitive in a place where we're saying it's too expensive for the headline price. But the reality is that front row seat was worth way more than $79.99, as evidenced by the fact that they all got bought and then resold on StubHub for $5,000, right? So right. what the industry did was they figured out, hey, we can actually charge more and create better value at the front end of the seats and then actually lower the price in the back end. And we will simultaneously increase the gross, but lower the average cost to get in. That's a big learning for us, right? Is that 
how do you, you know, the equivalent of suites or, or, or the like, how do you create some of these premium experiences where you're packaging in, whether it's ski delivery, you know, with, with things we've, we've done with ski butlers, or, you know, you see some of the premium experiences that they've trialed at Aspen. There are examples all over the industry of how do we create, you know, people will pay for something that is special and really differentiated. And if we can do that and increase kind of the take rate there, it should allow us to decrease the price to, uh, and cost to entry to have a great experience and access to the entire mountain and all of the lifts in between. So there's not a direct line between the two, but there's a lot of philosophical learnings on, in my opinion, we're just, we're at the front end of our kind of pricing and product packaging journey in the industry. And I think we're going to get much smarter about that over time. And I'll be the first to admit it, we'll screw it up. We'll do some stuff that won't work and we'll do some stuff that people don't love and we'll do some stuff that they do and we'll test and we'll learn our way into some great things. And again, credit where credit is due. I think that that's how Epic became Epic and Icon uh, became Icon is that these were new products that people hadn't thought about and they've iterated and evolved over time to be really, really great products that are helping the industry in tremendous ways and are an unbelievable value proposition for a consumer. So lots of exciting change coming to the tech side. In the meantime, Altera continues to grow in a more traditional way. You've made two acquisitions in the past six months. Snow Valley in California, let's start there. Why did you buy Snow Valley? You know, aside from the fact that it's kind of a gem of a hill, a lot of people don't know about it unless you're from Southern California, which I happen to be these days. But Snow Valley, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about Schweitzer as well. Snow Valley and, and Schweitzer really represent two very distinct acquisition theses for us. Snow Valley in particular was more of a, hey, we've got an unbelievably great presence in Southern California. We've got great management and great assets at Big Bear Mountain Resort between Snow Summit and Bear Mountain. And we've got the demand. And here's a great hill that's probably been underinvested in for a long period of time that makes a lot of sense under the umbrella of Big Bear Mountain Resort that we can lend some expertise to, you know, change the investment profile pretty immediately and quickly and give our, our Icon Pass members and certainly Southern California being one of our biggest bases of Icon Pass holders, give them another option where in Southern California, it's a drive-to market that is fantastic. So for all of those reasons, Snow Valley just made a lot of sense for us to put into the Big Bear family under Wade Reeser and, and his management there. But I think what you'll see is, is some investment over the next couple of years in their lift infrastructure and in their snowmaking infrastructure, and it'll get fully integrated into uh, Wade's operation. So I had a chance to ski Snow Valley in March. I had a great day there. They just got in that 10-foot storm. All the glades were live. Really, really, really fun hill, but frankly, the place is a mess. Lifts two and eight are still on the trail map. They haven't spun in five years. Lifts four and five have been off the map for, in some cases, decades, but they're still sitting there. You know, lift one is really nice, 2017 Lightner Poma six pack, but the rest are all old Yon lifts from the 70s and 80s. They have no safety bars. I mean, where do you even start? What do you want Snow Valley to become? What are your ideas to fix this place up? Well, we want it to be an Altera resort that's of the same caliber and quality as all of our resorts. And I think if you look at any of the resorts that we've acquired or have become part of the family over the last six years, not the least of which is Big Bear that came at inception along with Mammoth, we're fully committed. And you see the capital investment that we've been announcing over the last couple of years. We're fully committed to making sure that we've got a, a minimum standard that's best in class. And Snow Valley is no exception to that. So 
there's some obvious things that we'll do quickly coming out of the summer and then certainly next summer when we had, have had a little bit more time. And then there's some things that as we operated for a couple of years, we'll figure out where the patterns are, if we want to make any changes to, to the operation in the way that the traffic flows on the hill, and then make a decision on what lifts do we replace versus take out or upgrade. So we've got a pretty comprehensive kind of master planning group that Mark Brownlee has cultivated over the last couple of years that's looked at, you know, our entire portfolio and is really, in my opinion, turning it into a best-in-class uh, operation to really help us understand what those things are and get back to that capacity question of how do we maintain a really great experience as more and more people come to the mountains. So I don't have any specifics for you on, on which lifts win, but a general assurance that we know that there's some work to be done there, but we're committed to doing it. Altera has been very consistent about retrofitting its chairlifts with safety bars for, especially in California, it's not the norm, whereas in New England and New York, it's required by law and in some cases required by law to use them. Will you be adding safety bars to the old Yon lifts at Snow Valley this summer? Yeah, I think we are adding them to those lifts this summer, but we're generally, I'll have to confirm that with the team, but we're generally adding bars wherever we can to lifts, particularly those in beginner areas, right? So establishing some minimum standards for old lifts that need to be retrofit with bars and then our new lifts going forward, the new Burns lift at Deer Valley and the new lift at the new beginner area at Steamboat. We're first in North America that had automatic safety bars come in as part of learning areas. So really good examples of kind of how we're thinking about those minimum standards and pushing the safety envelope there. So yeah, we're looking at that not just in California, but across the system. So as you talk about capacity and Snow Valley complementing Big Bear, if you go back in the archives, there is there are old Snow Valley trail maps that show potential expansion, lookers right of the current terrain. And we're going back to the 80s here. But curious what you can tell us about your permit area with the Forest Service. Is Snow Valley expandable? Is that potential there? Yeah, I don't, I don't have the specific steward off the top of my head of exactly what's in the permit area or not, but I, I can definitely confirm that there are opportunities to create some more terrain there and was one of the things that we looked at as we were assessing uh, the asset and, and what it could grow into. So we're definitely excited that as we learn the mountain, we learn the operation and we introduce hopefully more visitation through Icon Pass access that we'll get a better understanding of how the mountain flows and where the capacity needs are. And then we can really decide what do we want to do? Do we want to cut some more trails? Do we want to glade some stuff out? Do we want to change the, the lift infrastructure in, in a way that accesses more uh, that opportunity? So not dissimilar from what we do in, in all of our places. There's definitely opportunity there. So one of the reasons that Big Bear has long been the most popular ski area in Southern California is you can actually stay up there. Curious, and you have this massive parking lot at Snow Valley. It's one of the biggest in skiing. Curious if you own any land at the base of Snow Valley where you could potentially start to build out condos, hotels, or or employee housing, or anything else that might be able to act as a not just a skiing relief valve, but a destination relief valve for Big Bear. Yeah, there are opportunities both on site and in and around land that comes with the deal and, and land that is available otherwise. But you're you're right. One of the big learnings for me coming in from the outside that's less obvious for, for those who aren't a part of the industry is just how important bed base is to these operations all the way up and down the stack, right? From guest accommodations and having to have some variety and make sure that there's availability there to employee housing. So we, across our, our system, have an incredible portfolio of land in, in base areas across 
a lot of these that will become a, a huge catalyst for, for us going forward on some of these development projects so, uh, in, in all of those categories. So up the road at Big Bear, Altera recently filed initial documents with the Forest Service proposing potential lifts between Bear Mountain and Snow Summit, which right now are just a couple miles apart next to each other, but you can't ski between them. What do you think the potential is here? And I realize this is just theoretical stages at this point, but what are you hoping to achieve by potentially linking Bear Mountain and Snow Summit? Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about it for a long time, you know, whether it was realistic or not, and whether or not we could get it permitted to connect the two. I mean, there's nothing there other than the obvious, which is we've got two really great mountains, and to get to them today is a not that easy drive. You got to get down into the parking lot and, and kind of across town, but from peak to peak or from peak down in the valley into the other is only a little bit of a mile plus. So if we could find a way to create some skiable connectivity between the two and get more people, more optionality, so they don't have to pick one or the other, you know, not dissimilar from a lot of the other combinations that have happened over time, <laughs> most recently, you know, Alpine Meadows and, and, uh, and Palisades, that's what we would be aiming to do. And there's a couple of ways that you could do that, whether it was a couple of lifts, you certainly wouldn't have to do it, you know, all in the air from a logistical standpoint. So to your point, pretty early in that process, and we've talked about it for a couple of years, and we certainly don't have any immediate plans to get that done, but we'd like to continue to study it and, and have it be an option for us. So Vail has, over the past dozen years or so, purchased a lot of these city-adjacent ski areas, and they now have a small ski area near just about every large cold-weather city in the United States. Altera has taken a different route so far and mostly purchased destination resorts, but Snow Valley fits into this category of not a destination, but a nice solid little ski area near a metro. Could we see Altera purchase more ski areas near Chicago or Detroit or New York City or Boston in an effort to try to capture some of this city market share that Vail's done? We look at acquisitions through a little bit of a different lens. We really want to make sure that things that we pull into the family have a combination of a quality of the terrain and quality of the experience, you know, that they have the ability that we're going to be able to make it better, either through investment or operational expertise or otherwise, and, you know, that have a team and a culture that really fits with what we're doing. So I, I would say we're open to, to acquisitions in a whole bunch of different categories. We're obviously not focused solely on destinations, but we're not also focused solely on how do we get a ski mountain next to every metro. So if there's one that fits those categories, we certainly are open to doing and, and acquiring smaller resorts, but I don't think we've got you know, a comprehensive M&A strategy to go metro by metro and make sure that we have an option. And that's a, a bit of the luxury that we have vis-a-vis -vis the partner model with Icon Pass in that we don't necessarily have to have those, you know, ownership of all of the resorts that are tied to those heavily populated metro areas. We've got lots of great operators that do a very, very good job in small local, regional, and, and national markets and ski areas that benefit from being a part of the Icon Pass and, and Icon Pass holders then benefit from, from having access to that. So a little bit of a balance for us on what we're trying to acquire and why. All right, let's talk about Schweitzer. So this is a destination resort, so completely different profile, as you mentioned, than Snow Valley. Talk about the decision to purchase Schweitzer. And I, my understanding is this deal came together very quickly. So why did you purchase Schweitzer and, and Schweitzer and how did it happen? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it through the lens of what I just said, Schweitzer certainly ticks all of those boxes. For those who haven't skied up there, the skiing is phenomenal. 
3,000 acres-ish of bowl skiing, of tree skiing, of glade skiing. It's a, it was a, just a really, really fun mountain and sits entirely on private land. So lots of opportunity to expand if we wanted to expand, which I think over time, I think there's a real need and, and an opportunity there on adding some beginner area and some, some of that terrain to complement some of the more intermediate and, and expert terrain that's on the mountain. So, you know, the quality of the ski experience is fantastic. It is a great, great mountain from that perspective. Number two, it definitely ticks the box of, we think we can, can improve it. We think we can invest and they had some pretty robust investment, capital investment plans going into this that we're committed to and going to continue some added capacity at the base of some facilities with some parking, uh, some new lift infrastructure, and we're going to continue to do all of that. They had added a hotel recently. So between the capital investment profile and the tooling that we can provide them, our MarTech stack and our e-commerce and, and ICOM pass, a pass holder destination, uh, hopefully visitation growth over time, we think we can complement the place and, and make it better. And then last but not least, the team, Tom Chasey and the team there are just fantastic. A really world-class team that's just run an incredible mountain in a great community that's built on a great culture. So it just ticked all of those boxes for us. And, you know, I think the, the fourth box where we look a lot is, again, at this demand and supply curve and Pacific Northwest continu continues to be over-indexed on demand and under-indexed, in our opinion, in terms of supply. So, you know, arguable whether or not, whether or not Sandpoint, Idaho is in the Pacific Northwest, but um, certainly <laughs> Seattle, it, it's a destination from Seattle, certainly drivable and can be an outlet for some of that demand. Do you have any insight into how Icon Pass access may evolve for Schweitzer? At the moment, it's still set to be seven days on the full pass, five days on the base pass for the 2023 to 24 ski season, which is the setup it had as a partner resort for the past several seasons. But is there any reason to think that Schweitzer won't evolve along the lines of Palisades Tahoe or Mammoth, which are unlimited on the Icon Pass and you get unlimited with blackouts on the base pass? Yeah, we're, we're certainly looking at that now. The deal is not closed. It's signed. We haven't taken full closure out yet. So I, I think that'll come. Uh, the decision on, on what we do both this year and then beyond will come shortly after that. But I certainly think the mountain has capacity to, to give. It can take a lot more visitation, particularly in non-peak days. So I think there's a lot of reason that we would want to create more incentive. Read that as potentially opening it up to unlimited on the, on the full icon pass. But we'll do that in consultation with Tom and his team, you know, over the next couple of months and make sure that the local pass holders, that that makes sense for, you know, however we treat them and do that in the right way. They've got a, a really great base of customers there that we want to make sure have the benefits of, of everything that we're trying to do. So, yeah, I think one of the things that we can do is really help get more icon pass holders there. And there's a couple of different ways that we can do that. So we'll, we'll evaluate that and make a decision here before too long. So meanwhile, the Icon Pass continues to grow. You added Alyeska for the 2023 to 24 ski season recently. Why did you add Alyeska? And do you plan to add more new partners before the 2023 to 24 ski season? Yeah, I don't think you're going to see much in the way of new partners between now and the fall. Last year was an exceptionally busy year of expansion that really lasted to the fall and then into the season. And this year, it's been a little bit slower, but Alyeska is certainly at the top of the list of new premier destinations. You know, we're constantly evaluating where are we and are there other places that we can benefit the pass holder base by adding? 
And, you know, over the last couple of years, we've been focused, I would say, in a couple of different categories. Number one, are there premier mountains that just continue to be destinations that we think are great experiences that we want pass holders to have access to? So that's number one. Number two is, do we have good geographic coverage, you know, to your point around population bases? And do we have enough supply to make the product really a great value and continue to have a lot of optionality for pass holders? So, and so we've done that. And the last couple of years in particular, you've seen us uh, try and do a lot more in the Pacific Northwest and in Western Canada that are just burgeoning markets that we didn't feel like we had enough supply and optionality for. So that that's really been a focus. And I would say Alyeska is a kind of a mix of those last two, uh, or the, the first and the, and the third, which is, you know, certainly in the Pacific Northwest, it's an easier destination to travel to, but it, it really is one of those aspirational premier destinations, unique in its location and the experience when, when you're there and it's just a really cool place and brand that I think is complementary to, to what Icon Pass represents. So we're stoked about that one. All right, let's focus on the Icon Base Pass for a moment here. This product has evolved a lot. When it debuted for the 2018 to 19 ski season, it was just $599, came with five days at all of your resorts. And over time, seven ski areas have either jumped off the Base Pass or opted not to join the Base Pass, and they're available on the Base Plus tier. And Taos is the most recent of those. It joined Jackson Hole, Aspen, Snow Basin, Sun Valley, Deer Valley, and Alta is ski areas that are Icon partners, but you can no longer access on the Icon Base Pass. Meanwhile, the price of that product has continued to increase, and, and I, you know, obviously you are adding more partners, so it's not as though the number of partners is going down. But that product was five ninety nine for the twenty eighteen to nineteen ski season. This ski season, it was eight twenty nine early bird. It's now nine twenty nine. Does this slow erosion of value in the Icon Base Pass concern you at all, Jared? <laughs> the, the question's phrased as if uh, if I believe it's slow erosion. Um, okay. I think, I, listen, I, I, I joke a little bit. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the price has gone up, and I think it's a the value proposition was tremendous then, and I, I still think it's fantastic. We're not overly concerned that there's a direct correlation between that product in where it started and where it is today either in terms of price, but more importantly, what's the offering? There's a lot more capacity and a lot more optionality and, and the value for price paid, I think is still sky high. But I think most importantly is we're going to continue to look at the entire portfolio of Icon Pass and, and the different tiers from base all the way down to session, which didn't even exist when we initially had just the base price at, at $599 and, and the rest. And just make sure that we've got the right mix of prices and offerings across that that whole category. But it's part of this broader conversation that we have you know, internally at Altera and then certainly with our partners to make sure that we've got the right mix of price and capacity and, and all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of attracting more people to the sport overall and then making sure that we deal with some of the busier days at some of those premier mountains at the right price. And that's never, as you well know, right? It's never a a straightforward kind of calculation that you can put into an Excel file and say, spit out this price for this usage at this resort over this time. So it's a little bit trial and error, but we're pretty confident with where we are. And, and I think the thing that we are most confident about is between our past products and the other past products that are in the industry right now, if you're willing to make that advanced purchase and buy one of these multi-mountain passes, the value that you're getting to access, again, whether it's ours or Epic or the others that are out there is tremendous. And you, you look at that over time, over 10, 20 years, 
and it's still cheaper on a per visit basis today than it was in, in a lot of those circumstances. So, so yeah, we're constantly looking at that and making sure that we've got the right mix. Yeah, it's still an outstanding value, no question. And if you look at the the broader marketplace, you really seem to be retaining pricing power with the Icon Pass. If you look at current Epic Pass prices, the full Epic Pass Epic Pass is $929. The full Icon Pass right now, we're recording this on July 26th, is $1,259. It's a $330 difference. Epic Local is $689 and Icon Base is $929. That's a $240 difference. Going back to Icon's debut season, Altera seemed to peg the price to Epic. So the Icon Pass debuted at $899. And in fact, Icon Base undercut Epic Local going 599 to Epic's 669 that year. I'm, I'm curious if you can take us through this journey here, Jared, of how we got from parity and really saying, okay, that we're going to be compete with these guys to really Icon really becoming the premium product here in the North American ski landscape. Yeah, and this might sound an oversimplification, but we're just really focused on our product and, and our proposition. I think Epic is a tremendous product. I think they've done an awesome job and it's an incredible value for consumers. And I think ours is too, but I think they're they're different in a lot of different ways. They're, they're different business models. There's different considerations and partner versus their primarily owned destinations. And for all of those reasons, we're just constantly looking at, you know, where are we trying to be from a number of passes sold and the visitation that we're trying to create for us and our partners and at a price that we think is is still a tremendous value for them, but allows us to continue to pursue our investment profile, which is obviously pretty aggressive. And so far that has led us down this evolution over the last six years, which has been to you know, stratify the product a little bit more, introduce session and take the price of the full one up as we've added more destinations and added more value there, and then make some adjustments in the middle with base plus and et cetera. So it's really more a story of the evolution of Icon Pass within the Icon network itself than it is relative to any other pass that's in the market. And I think that'll continue to be the case. And we're pleased with where our numbers are, where our participation is and and kind of how the market has responded to that. But we're, as you can imagine, we're, we're always talking to pass holders and getting consumer feedback formally, qualitatively, quantitatively, to make sure that the proposition is right and it's fair and it's got the right mix. So, you know, I would anticipate that you'll continue to see some subtle adjustments each season. And, you know, some seasons you might see us introduce some more products, more tiers, just to, to try and hone that in and give people exactly what they're looking for. But we tend to be a little bit insular in how we look at our own stuff relative to others. So Vale is reporting slight increases in past sales, volume, and, and metrics. And I realize you're not going to tell me any of that, but what can you tell us about 2023 to 24 Icon past sales so far? Yeah. Yeah. As you know, we don't we don't report our numbers, but we're pleased. Yeah. I think we're, we're certainly seeing that there's a great appetite for, for skiing. I think the momentum that we all have coming off of an unbelievable winter out West, like truly unbelievable, almost a perfect winter in, in Utah and Colorado. And one that got better, you know, certainly was, was not a great start to the season out East, as you know, but got better as, as the year went on. So, you know, it feels like we've got some real momentum just in the market overall about people being excited about the sport and the activity and the experience. So yeah, we're pretty pleased with where we are right now. All right, Jared, last thing before I let you go today, I want to ask you about Altera's first impact report. Tell us about the impact report and why Altera put it together and released it. 
Yeah, I'm super glad that you brought it up. You know, one of the things that is, we go back to the, the start of this conversation and in my attraction to the industry and to this company in particular and in this ownership group is that we really have a culture here that prioritizes purpose, as we say, and in an ownership group that is really committed to making sure that we do right by the communities that we operate in, the environment that we're blessed to be able to kind of be stewards of, the people that we serve our employees and, and those around, and also just running a, a good ship as it relates to you know operating responsibly and, and those types of things. But there's been so many great commitments in the industry, you know, kind of writ large. Even the big folks, certainly Vale has a, a long history of philanthropy and sustainability commitments and has done some really great work, Powder, Boeing, the like. And we, you know, in some regards are a little bit late to the party and kind of getting out and, and putting stakes in the ground on some of this stuff. It was certainly a topic when I was joining the company and early in, in my conversations over the last couple of years, but we had some ground to make up and we were more focused on really understanding our current footprint and what was happening. And we wanted to make sure that we did that right before we made some of those declarations. So over the last couple of years, we've done really comprehensive evaluations of our philanthropic footprint, of our carbon emission footprint. We brought in third parties to do those audits, ASHRAE building audits, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the report that you saw us put out was, was the product of that. Karen Sanford was our longtime general counsel and is now our chief legal officer and heads up our corporate social responsibility. Her and her team have done a, just an amazing job. We've got a wonderful executive in charge of our DEI initiatives, Andy Gao. We've got a wonderful new head of sustainability in Darcy Wren. So we've, we're starting to invest in the people and the expertise to, to make sure that we can make good on these issues. And I think we're certainly proud of the work that we're doing, but I'm certainly proud of the industry and the climate collaboration charter that we've reached with the other major players in the industry, I think is a good step. And we're, we're certainly committed to playing our part as a, as a leader in the industry to, to push those things forward. There's as we talk about heat and, and climate, you know, those are certainly going to impact our industry at large, and, and we need to be advocates for that that change. And I'm proud of, of our partners in the industry that they're doing that. We want to play our role, too. You talk a little bit about the DEI side of that report, Jared, and what you're trying to achieve there. Well, I think we look at DEI through a pretty myopic lens, which is we, we want to attract as many people as we can to the mountains. And we want, you know, we pr would prefer that our mountain operations and our, uh, certainly our, our shared services and, and head office operations reflect uh, the customer base that we want to be included here. So it's certainly the right thing to do, but it's also, we want to diversify the sport and we want to make sure that more people feel compelled to give it a try. And as you all know, when people give it a try, they, they tend to become lifelong skiers. So for us, it's those two things combined. And there's there's certainly been barriers to that uh, on both sides. The, the industry is disproportionately, from an employment standpoint, disproportionately less diverse and is from a consumer experience as well. So a, a lot of the work that Annie is doing is really to make sure that we understand what are the drivers of that? What are the impediments to people feeling like they can have access to a career in this industry or feeling like they can join from a participation standpoint so that we can address those head on. So le less about the headline and more about what, what can we do? And that translates for us into, you know, making sure that we are recruiting in, in places that have 
more diverse candidate pools, which has you know, obviously served us well in a, in a really tight labor market over the last couple of years at all levels of the company. And then partnerships like She Jumps and Share Winner that are, are making it easier for people from less advantaged backgrounds to be able to, to access the sport and try it from a participation standpoint. So those are really kind of the lenses that we look at it through. Well, amazing things happening in all parts of the business, Jared, from technology to mountain expansion and acquisition to the social side of things. So really appreciate you sharing all that with us. Lots more to come. and I look forward to seeing it all. Thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, appreciate it. Hope you get some travel with the family and uh, we look forward to talking with you soon. That's Jared Smith president and CEO of Altera Mountain Company. Thank you so much for that, Jared. And thank you, Altera, for working so hard to make your leaders available. Former CEO and current vice chairman of the board, Rusty Gregory has appeared three times on this podcast and several of the company's resort leaders have as well. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the entire team at Altera. Thank you all so much for listening. I've got lots more icon pass on the way for you with the leaders of Killington, Snowbird, Schweitzer, Big Sky, Sunday River, and Mount Bachelor booked over the coming months. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter, threads, and Instagram at Stormstream Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.